Thank you, Adam. Thank you, choir. While you're being seated, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the very back of the book, to the book of Gen- uh, Revelation, <laughs> Genesis, to Revelation chapter 21. And uh, we're going to get there here in just a few moments. We're finishing out a series today. It's been a fairly short series uh, called The Big Story. And I uh, started it three Sundays ago. And what we've done is we've just summarized the story of the Bible into something that's a little bit easier to remember, uh, something that's easier uh, to share, but also it, it's just it, it's the big picture, right? It's the big story. When you think about the Bible, the Bible can be a little bit overwhelming. I mean, this is a big book, right? Written over about 1,500 years span, uh, around 40 different human authors. Those human authors all come from a different, you know, many of them come from different backgrounds. Uh, one, for example, would be a king, Solomon. There were, there were others also. Well, one would be a shepherd who would also be a king, David. You would have a, uh, a physician in the mix, Luke, who wrote Luke and the book of Acts as well. You would have some fishermen in there. John would be one of those, for example. Uh, you would have uh, a fig picker by the name of Amos. That was, his, that was his vocation to a large degree. And so you look at all these different authors, 40 different authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, all inspired by God, to, to the point to where we can say that truly God is the one who wrote the Bible. That's why we call it God's Word. It is without error. We can bank on it. We can live our lives off of it. We can be, uh, plan our eternity based on what it tells us. And, uh, and, and, and yet when we look at it, I mean, this is a big book, 66 different books that are part of this. We call it the Bible, but really it's a compilation of 66 smaller books that come together. 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of those in the New Testament. And when you, when you look at all of it, it's one book comprised of 1,189 chapters, over um, 800,000 words, over 31,000 verses. And when you think about summarizing this, I mean, it's just like, where do we start? How do we even consider summarizing a story like this? And yet, that's what we've tried to do in the course of this series. We've looked at the big story, and we've broken it down in pieces, kind of like a play that has different acts. You know, maybe it's a three-act three, three act play or five-act play. We've done four acts, four parts of this big story. Do you remember? I mean, we've, we've walked through just a few weeks ago. Uh, the first act, act one was creation. Act two is the fall, which is where sin entered in. Uh, act three is redemption that we covered last Sunday where Jesus came. He died for us, and he rose again from the grave. And it's only Christ who can pay for our sin and ultimately save us and uh, make us right with God again. And then Act 4 is restoration. So it's really cool when you think about it because uh, when you look at the Bible, uh, again, 1,189 chapters, uh, creation is largely dealt with in Genesis 1 and 2, the very first two chapters of the Bible. It doesn't mean creation is never mentioned elsewhere. That's certainly the case. But really, Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters, deal with creation. Genesis 3 deals with sin. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that the rest of the Bible doesn't talk about sin. It certainly does. But that's where we find that sin enters, is in Genesis chapter 3. Well, basically, Genesis chapter 4, all the way through Revelation chapter 20, the bulk of the Bible is talking about redemption. It's that story of redemption that is prophesied, that is looked forward to, that, that, that ultimately culminates when Jesus comes. And so the bulk of the Bible is talking about redemption. Now, again, you see redemption all the way back in the very beginning. You see it in, in, in creation. You see it demonstrated. I mean, you see when God creates, he says, let us make man in our own image. That's a picture of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In fact, even in Genesis 3 in the garden, when, whenever sin came in, in Genesis 3.15, you see what's called the first gospel, where the Messiah is looked forward to. But it's largely from Genesis 4 through Revelation 20 that you see redemption talked about, prophesied, lived out in Jesus, and, and then ultimately promised. 
but it's in the last two chapters that we see the whole concept of restoration. Again, it's dealt with throughout the other chapters as well, but we see the story culminates and it comes full circle in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. So think about this for a second. What if the big story ended at redemption? What if whenever Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose again from the grave, he had paid the penalty for our sin and the gospel is being proclaimed to all mankind, right? The, the, the church's birth and, and, and off it goes to share the gospel. What if the big story ended there? What if it was only three acts, creation, fall, redemption? It would leave a lot of questions hanging, right? One of those questions would be, well, what happens to this fallen world? Because we live in a fallen world, obviously. Uh, we, we live in a world that's ravaged by the effects of sin. What would, what, what, what's going to happen? to this world, if we don't get to act for restoration, we're never going to know. What's going to happen to those who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus? Well, restoration helps to answer that question. What happens to those of us who placed our faith in Jesus? What do we look forward to? What's going to come for us? We would be left hanging if there wasn't act for restoration. And so when we look at the big story, we're just summarizing this big book called the Bible down into four different parts. We've moved through them as we've gone through. And today we're going to focus on act four, restoration. We're going to see how God brings it full circle. We're going to let the Bible dictate to us what that looks like. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, Anytime you deal with the book of Revelation, you're, sometimes you're going to leave with more questions than you started with. And, and so God doesn't answer every question you're going to have. When you think about heaven, it's not going to answer every question that you have about heaven. It's just, it's not going to answer every one of those. But it does tell us enough for us to be able to look forward and to anticipate what that restoration is going to look like. And it might look a little different than what you're thinking of. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. And so Revelation chapter 21, let's go ahead and jump in. This is not going to be an exhaustive study of Revelation. That's not the, 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 that's not the aim today. What we want to do is just put this final piece of the big story in place and, uh, and to point a little bit to what's ahead. Most of this message we're looking at this morning is going to be at a time yet to come for us, a, a time in the end, we could say. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to read the first five verses. We're going to roll some other passages in through the course of this message as well. And let's go ahead and begin looking at Act 4, Restoration, and what that looks like. So Revelation chapter 21, John, the uh, former disciple, the apostle, is writing the book of Revelation. Again, he is seeing things at a time yet to come. And as he writes it, and we read it now 2,000 years later, we are also still waiting for these events to unfold that he's writing of here. In chapter 21, verse 1, he begins and he writes and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's, a, that's an important word. I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. So if you've really paid attention through this series, you've heard me say kind of the same thing at some point in the message all three weeks leading up to today. 
When we've talked about these four key words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, I've explained it in a little bit of a different way. I've said in a sense, the story, the big story is that the Bible tells us how we were made, how we were broken, that's the fall, that's sin. God didn't break us, by the way, we broke ourselves through our own sin. We've looked at how God paid for that brokenness, that's redemption, when Jesus came and died and rose again. And then I've also said that we see in the big story of how God fixes, or, and I've used this wording, or even better, even more clearly, how God replaces. When we get here to Revelation 21, we begin to see that, and we, we have to take this picture that when we're talking about how God restores all things in the end, it's not a picture of God getting a lot of heavenly duct tape, you know, maybe like your dad used to do when you were a kid. He'd fix everything with duct tape. It's not this picture of like the end life, you know, it's just some fixed, stapled together, duct taped, kind of, you know, just rigged up life to, to, to just kind of last through the rest of eternity because sin did such a deal on God's creation. It's not that. God does truly fix, and he brings the story full circle. But what we're going to see here, better yet, is that he replaces, he gives something new. Now, again, we can't answer every question about what our new life is going to look like. We're going to have to wait till we get to heaven. What we do know is that Scripture tells us that, not, not, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can conceive what God has in store for those who love him, for those who have a relationship with him through Christ. So there's a lot we're going to have to wait till we get there to be able to know exactly what it's going to look like. All we can settle right now is that we couldn't handle if John just peeled back and told us everything about what's to come. We couldn't handle that. We couldn't handle the truth, right? We wouldn't be able to handle that. We would be, as one friend of mine told me this week over breakfast, he said, if we knew everything of what heaven was going to look like, we would be the most miserable people on the face of this earth. I mean, you think about that for a second. I would have to agree because if we knew down to every detail what we're missing out there, right, why would we want to go another day knowing that's what's waiting for us? And so God leaves some questions unanswered, but he peels back enough to show us that he has something in store for us that's just going to blow us away. And he's going to make all things new. So what is it that God restores? When we talk about restoration, what does he restore? Well, he restores a few things. Look in verse 1, again in Revelation 21. One thing he restores is his creation. Remember, he created, and it was very good, Genesis 1 and 2, and then sin came in Genesis 3. If you remember, there were uh, effects that came as a result of sin. There were effects on man, uh, there were effects on woman, there were effects on creation itself. In Revelation 21, verse 1, what it tells us, John says, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. One of the things that God is going to restore is going to be his very creation. Because what Paul's going to tell us in Romans chapter 8 is that ever since sin, when God had to judge sin, it's not just been you and I, it's not just been mankind that has suffered under the penalty of sin, right? We deal with temptation even as Christians. We still sin. We still give in. We, we still have to grapple with that daily, right? But what the Bible also tells us is that creation itself has to deal with the effects of sin as well. We have a fallen world, right? Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8. Paul is talking about this, and it's interesting the language that he uses. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, for I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time, right? He's talking about his present experience 2,000 years ago. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, even creation itself is, is, is longing to, to experience its ultimate redemption. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, right? God judged sin in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so when you put both of those together, Paul says the creation itself is waiting for the day when it's going to be restored. John looks at a time yet to come, and he says there's going to come a time in the end when God is going to provide a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth passed away. This is not a duct tape together, patched up, reworking. This is a replacement placement, a new heaven, and a new earth. This is something that only God could accomplish. Genesis 1 and 2, perfection. In between, for all those chapters, it's just a picture of sin and destruction and death and, 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 and the consequences that come. But in the end, the last two chapters, the other end of the book, God's going to pull it all for a circle and he's going to replace. And it's interesting because creation is going to be one of the things he's going to ultimately restore. There's not going to be any more death. That wasn't part of God's original design. There will be no more need for hospitals and cancer units. There will be no more need for, uh, 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 for EMS workers, right? Because those things are going to be unnecessary. They're not going to be in existence anymore. God will restore. There will be no more gnats that bite. I don't know what they're going to look like if they still exist. Maybe they'll have bodies to go with their flying teeth as we know them right now. Right, I go to soccer games. Drew has soccer. April's playing soccer. And uh, any of you that are soccer parents, you know, uh, we sit up there weekly and we burn our incense, not to false gods, but to keep the gnats from devouring uh, us to, into nothing while we're watching soccer. And we, we burn these things to put off the smoke to keep the gnats away. Those aren't going to be needed anymore. They're not going to be selling those in a side booth in heaven, right? No more pain, no more suffering, no more illness, no more disease, no more separation, no more loss of having to stand over the grave of a loved one as you say goodbye for a season. None of those things are going to be the case any longer. God is going to restore. He's going to restore his creation, but he's also going to restore our fellowship with him as believers. He's going to restore our fellowship with him so that in the end, when it all comes full circle, you're not going to have those moments as a follower of Jesus where when you open the Bible and you read your devotional for the day and you think, I don't understand this. I don't understand. I don't see how this fits. I don't, I don't, I don't understand what I just read. Right? That's not going to be the case anymore. The fog's going to be lifted. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, it's not going to be like looking in a mirror dimly lit anymore, but in that day we're going to see face to face. I have a friend of mine who preaches. I heard him preach probably 25 years ago, and he made this comment once. 
Um, and and, and there, there's nothing biblical in here. It's speculation. But he said, you know, he said, I think when we get to heaven one day, we're going to be able to see how all the pieces fit in our lives. And all those, the, the, like living in a bowl of spaghetti, so to speak, where, you know, it's all just an intertwined, it seems like a jumble of, of just, just a mess. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to realize. So that's what was up with that event that went on in my 20s. That's what went on. That's what God was doing through that event that happened when I was back in school. This is how God ended up working all this out for good and we're going to see how it all fits that's an interesting thought isn't it because our fellowship with him is going to be complete it's going to be face to face we're not going to have any more of those dry seasons in our faith where we're stumbling and we're struggling we're not going to have any more of those instances where when we pray and it feels like our prayers don't quite get past the ceiling much less (laughs) to heaven right none of that anymore it's going to be an unbroken fellowship with God. He's going to restore that. Look at what he says down in verse 2 and verse 3 there in Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In the Old Testament, they would build the tabernacle, and they would have the temple, and God's glory would fill this. And it would be evident when God's glory had filled the temple, when God's glory had filled that space. But still, there there was this sense that mankind was living under the weight of sin. But there's going to be a day when it's not going to be that anymore, and we're going to be in open fellowship with God, because God will have restored no sin, no temptation, no inclination to sin. Why is that? Look over in chapter 20, verse 10. Chapter 20 in Revelation, verse 10. This is where we see the, the ultimate destination of our adversary, the devil. It says in chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire in brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No more when we get there in the end will he be an issue for us. No more discouragement, no more shame, no more guilt. Once and for all, unbroken fellowship with God. No more suffering, no more pain. Look in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away beautiful union with God for the Christian, a beautiful reunion with those who went on before us who were Christians as well. God's going to restore his creation. He's going to restore ultimately our fellowship with him. He's also going to store righteousness and justice. You know, sometimes on this earth, even as followers of Jesus, we, we, we face things or we see things in the news and we're kind of left hanging thinking, you know, why does it seem like evil wins so often? You know, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There's a reason for that because there's a day coming when he's going to also restore the sense of righteousness and justice as well. For those who don't have a relationship with God, their sin is going to be judged ultimately. Without a relationship with Christ, they'll be separated from God forever. It's described in Revelation 20, verse 11. Now, let me just say, before I read this, that this is not an experience that the follower of Jesus is going to have, what I'm about to read here in Revelation 20, verse 11. 
This is a judgment of sin for those who've never had their sin forgiven. This is why we share the gospel. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, in other words, were not in relationship with Jesus, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This, this is the ultimate picture. It's a, it's a sobering picture right, of how sin is ultimately paid for if not paid for by Jesus it's through separation for eternity from the presence of the God who is eternal and who created us in the first place this is a this is a sobering reminder of why we need to be sharing the message of the gospel the big story Second Peter chapter 3 verse 13 you can see that on the screen behind me Peter is writing of a day yet to come he says in second Peter 3 Verse 13, he says, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is going to restore, he's going to restore his creation, no longer under the, 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 uh, the curse, the penalty of sin. God's going to restore our fellowship as believers with himself, and he's going to restore righteousness and justice. And here's the thing, it, when that day comes in the end, it's going to be evident to every single person who's ever lived in history that there is only one God and there's only one king. It's going to be evident. There's not going to be any place to argue it. There's not going to be any place to resist it. It's going to be evident. It's going to be without argument whatsoever that it is obvious of who is creator, who is God, who is Lord, right? And, and, and who is righteous, and, and, and his righteousness and his justice is going to be satisfied. And yet no one can say, why is God so angry with man? Why is God so against mankind? This all seems so harsh. Remember, restoration comes after redemption, right? That we can never make the argument that God is angry or God is unfair or God is unjust. No, long before this time comes when he judges sin for what it is, long before that ever comes, he has already paid for it in the person of Jesus who came and died and, and rose. And he's given us a book that we can trust to chronicle everything we need to know about Jesus in order to place our faith in him. And he's put together on this earth this living organism called the church to go and to share the message with the mandate, to share that message of new life and the gospel with everyone who needs to hear. Right? We can't blame God for the existence of hell. We can't blame God when he judges sin because in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he provided payment already for us, and the payment was he himself. But there's going to be a day when all of it is pulled together full circle because he is a God of restoration on his terms not on ours. Now, here's the cool thing. When you look through the Gospels, you see that Jesus' ministry was all about restoration, right? Remember how in, in Romans 8, Paul said that the creation groans, waiting for the day when it will be restored. 
Jesus was all about that. When he walked this earth, what, what did he do? He gave sight to the blind, right? Blindness was not part of Genesis 1 and 2. It wasn't part of God's original plan. He gave sight to the blind. He restored the ability to hear to those who had lost the ability to hear. He, he restored the ability to walk to those who were lame, who were unable to walk. He even went so far as to meet people in the midst of, of their sin, right? Could have easily been you, could have easily been me. He would meet them right there in the ditch where they were, and he would offer forgiveness. He would restore. He would bring healing out of brokenness. He, he would reach those that the world had overlooked and forgotten, and ultimately he would come to the place to where on three different occasions in the New Testament, once for the, uh, the son of a widow woman near the city of Nain, once for a 12-year-old daughter of a synagogue official named Jairus and another for a close friend named Lazarus. Three times in the New Testament we read detailed accounts of how Jesus stood over the body of a person who ultimately sin had grasped to the point of death and he restored life to what everybody else had given up on. His whole ministry was about restoration. His whole ministry was about taking what had been ravaged by sin and re, re, uh, restoring the life that God had originally intended. And yet even still, in the midst of this world, no weakness of Jesus, but in the, in the dynamic that God would allow, death would still come. All three of those people that Jesus would raise from the dead would have a funeral in their place where they were not raised. But there would be a day there will be a day when life will win. And it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we tried hard enough. It's not because we were good enough. It's going to be because we placed our faith in one named Jesus, who alone can give life. And he was a part of creation in the first place. He was the one who provided for our redemption in the face of our own sin. And he's the one who's going to restore and make all things new. A fitting close to a big story couple of principles that come out of this. When you look at Act 4, restoration, what that does is, is it helps to set the focus for the way we live our lives today. See, here, here's what you don't want to do. Here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to say, all right, so creation, fall, redemption, understand all that. But restoration, I don't really need to think about that because that's coming down the road. We don't want to do that because the fact that God is going to restore, that he's going to restore creation, that he's going to restore our fellowship with him, that he's going to right all wrongs, right? Justice and righteousness win in the end. Those things help to set our focus now so that when we're going through hardship and difficulty, which this world gladly offers, it's a fallen world, when we go through hardship and difficulty, what God says is you don't walk alone. You've been redeemed. You have one to walk with you, right? God walks with us through the fire, but he also sets our focus to say it's it's not always going to be like this. I've got something better that's coming. And I understand. I know what you're thinking. Brooks, that's easier said than done. I get it. I live in the same world you do. I walk the same walk that you walk. I get it. That's not always easily done. But listen, we can persevere more easily when we know it's not always going to be this way. God sets our sight. He sets our focus on eternity so that we can live differently on this side. We can be faithful to him because we look at what he's done for us. He's, he, he's not only saved us from our sin, but he's got a place waiting for us, right? He's done all things well. We can have joy. We can have hope. We, we, can, we can reach out to those who are vulnerable. We can reach out to those who are weak. We can reach out to those that the world has forgotten. Why? Because God has a new life for them. God has something better for them. And he wants to use us in the same way he used uh, the, the early church. He wants to use us as well to, to bring restoration into a fallen world. 
Not that we can do that in our strength, but we can walk in the power of his Holy Spirit and we can help to see God use us to make a difference in the lives of broken people. And most of all, if we set our sights towards the future, he calls us to share the gospel. That's why when we think about lost family members, people who we work with, people that we know, people on our streets, in our neighborhoods, on our ball teams, in our schools, uh, when we think about the people that come to mind that don't have a relationship with God, this is why we share the gospel. Because they need a redeemer. And there's going to come to a day in the end, right, where he's going to bring it all full circle. Act 4 restoration sets our focus for how we are live our life today. And, and, and in a sense, when you think about it, when you look at the big story, it, it is linear. There's creation, and there was the fall, and then there's Jesus coming and offering redemption, and the restoration is a day yet to come. But in, in many ways, it's all playing itself out right now. In fact, to the point to where principle number two is that when you bring this to the level of your own life, to who you are personally, God will restore today, not waiting for just a day ultimately down the road, but even today, those who don't have a relationship with with God. God will restore the brokenness of life even today for the one who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith. Many of you have heard this story many times, and I won't go into all the details, but when I was a little kid, uh, eight or nine, uh, Joe's life uh, age pretty much, who was just baptized earlier, probably right around her age, my mom shared the message of the gospel with me. We were at home, we were upstairs, and she used a little book called The Hiding Place, written by a woman named Corey Ten Boom, and she kind of told that little story, and, and she shared with me that, that for me to be able to go to heaven to have a relationship with God, my response was I needed to, and I think the word she used was to ask Jesus into my heart, meaning to place my faith in Christ. And the best a little kid could, it was obvious, my mom wasn't the only one speaking that day, God was stirring in my heart, and I went outside in my backyard, and uh, we had a little patio there and an old basketball goal, and I had my basketball with me, I don't know why I remember that, but I went outside, I mean, get, cut me a break, I was about eight or nine, and, uh, and I went outside, and God was just moving in my heart, in the ba- and I just knew, like, this is a decision I need to make. And, and I prayed, and, and that day, in that moment, on that spot, I prayed and I gave my life to Jesus the best that a little kid could. Now, I didn't know everything about the Bible, and I still don't, but I responded in childlike faith the way that God called me to. And what happened in that moment, whenever I gave my life to Jesus, is that God made, created a relationship, a brand new relationship with me that had never existed to that point. And he paid for my sin, and he brought me into the family. The Bible uses the word adoption, which is so cool, because I wasn't in the family before, and then he put me into the family after I placed my faith in Jesus. And as a result of that, that very day and that very moment, as a little kid, eight or nine years old, I don't even remember the date or exactly how old I was. I just remember it happening. In that very moment, what God did was he gave me a brand new heart. He didn't patch up the old one. Right, he gave me a brand new heart and a brand new life. And I may have looked the same on the outside, the skinny little kid who was shy and didn't like talking in front of people. God has a sense of humor, I suppose. But on the inside, everything changed. And it didn't mean that I would never sin again. It didn't mean that I would never struggle with temptation. It didn't mean that I would never uh, falter or, 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 or be weak or struggle in my faith or any of those things. But it meant on the inside, I was a brand new person. Because God told me that I was a brand new person. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of you know the verse. We've got it right here on the screen behind me, I believe. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a not a patched up, fixed up, molded back together again Christian. No, it says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. <laughs> 
The old things passed away. That sin removed as far as the east is from the west. Never held against you any longer. Behold, new things have come. And when we talk about restoration, understand it's not just about a day yet to come and we sing songs about heaven and we think about what it's going to be like and won't it be great to see our loved ones who went on ahead of us. Yes, all of that is true. But don't miss the fact that restoration can be part of the picture still today. Because when you give your life to Jesus, he makes all things new that day on the inside. And he gives you a new relationship with him. That even though it's still a struggle on this side of eternity, that relationship is still very real. And when we pray, dear God, he says, I hear you. (laughs) And when we come to him, we don't have to hope that he shows up because he's already there. He's already said he's never going to leave us or forsake us. But there's going to be a day when the mirror is lifted or, or the veil is lifted, so to speak. We're going to see him like we've never seen him before. But we don't have to wait till then. We can know him today. It's a big story, right? 800,000 words, 31,000 verses, 1,189 chapters. 66 books in one Bible, summarized in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I wonder for you, where does your life land in that big story? Can you say, you know what, Brooks? I know that my life has been redeemed. My sin has been paid for. I've been placed in relationship with God. I've been adopted as one of his own through my faith in Jesus, my repentance of my sin. Then you've got a lot to be grateful for, and you've got a story to tell. But maybe for some of you, you would say, you know what, Brooks, I don't have that assurance necessarily. I wish I could be like Joe, who has already placed her faith in Jesus, and now she knows for the rest of her Days that she's never going to be without God. Maybe for you, you say, I wish I could say that for myself. You know what? You can. Because if you've never given your life to Jesus, that's the starting place. And the good news is that that's what he puts on the table today. That's what he offers. A brand new life and a brand new heart and a fresh new start when you lay down your sin and invite Jesus to forgive and take over. He's done the heavy lifting. He's already paid the ultimate price to the point where he says, it is finished. And all that awaits is your faith in him. Man, if you've never made that decision, no better time, no better place than right here, right now. To say, Jesus, would you forgive and save even me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. Work going on in this very moment, perhaps, as God speaks into the hearts of some people here. To make a decision that's going to last forever, that's going to give them a new home, a new start, a new heart and eternal life. If you've never given your life to Jesus and yet you feel like there's something stirring on the inside, maybe it started in this message, maybe it's been going on through this whole series, maybe it has nothing to do with anything going on in this church, maybe this is your first time here and yet God has been just stirring. There's been people crossing your paths, there have been things that you've been thinking about, folks that have been mentioning spiritual topics and spiritual things, and it's just been something, this sense on the inside that something is not quite right, there's something missing. Regardless, maybe God's brought you to this place in this moment for your response. Maybe for you, you don't need me to say anything else. You already are convinced that you need a Savior. (laughs) You need a Redeemer. You need your sin covered and paid for and taken away. And you're ready for a new life. And you believe that only Jesus can do it. 
you know what? There's nothing magical about the words we speak. It's just a way that we express our trust and our faith in God. What about right now, maybe in the quietness of this moment, you express your desire to place your faith in Jesus by just telling him, saying something like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. I know that my sin has broken a relationship with God. And I know that it needs to be paid for. I believe, Jesus, that you are God, that you died for me, that you rose again for me. And today, as an act of my will, the best that I can, I turn away from my sin. And I invite you, Jesus, to forgive me, to save me, to wash away my sin, and to take over my life. I trust in you alone. Help me to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe for you, you prayed that prayer today for the first time, or maybe you weren't certain you had a relationship with God, and today you've nailed that down. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You know, there are some things that happened in that moment. Number one, God began a brand new relationship with you. It's never going to end. He promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. He promises to work all things out for good for you in a way that you can't fully understand today. He's given you a home that he's going to prepare for you in eternity. It's going to forever be in his presence. And he's going to use your life to make a difference as long as you continue to walk with him. Your sins are forgiven. Your slate is wiped clean. You have no reason to drag around that guilt and that shame of things from the past. You can walk with a new heart and a new perspective in your life. God, we thank you today for those that perhaps for the first time have given their lives to Jesus. We know we only do that once. But God, we thank you that you're a God who does all things well. You pull the, the, the story full circle. And even though we don't deserve redemption and we don't deserve a second chance and we don't deserve to have our sins taken away knowing that they're only taken away because they were first cast on Jesus. Lord, in your grace and your love and your mercy, you choose to give us that second chance and you choose to offer redemption. And even beyond that, you choose to give us a brand new life that's just going to blow us away. God, help us to walk in that joy. Help us to walk in the peace and, and hope and purpose, knowing that our lives are of great value because you've made them to be of great value. So valuable that Jesus died to ultimately provide redemption. But God, help us to also be about sharing this message of the big story with those who need to hear so that they can know you the way we do. So God, we thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the end of the book. Thank you for the end of the story. And God, we give only you the glory for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.